Well, it's a great privilege to welcome Peter Hall to the LSE. Um, I'm not sure whether what has been put in front of me by the LSE is a reflection of the significance which will be attached to this, uh, to, to this, to this lecture, but it says, Guide to Chairing Public Meetings <laughs> in the Event of Disorder. And then it says, further down, Repeat this slowly and clearly twice. I have asked you twice to stop disrupting this meeting. So just in case you're thinking of doing so, I've got this to back me up. So... Uh, you're speaking to me. <laughs> um, well, Peter wouldn't allow me to make a flamboyant introduction. I'm not quite sure why you used the word flamboyant, but on the grounds that the last person who had done this had led him to say something which he afterwards regretted, and he then wouldn't tell me what this, what this was. Anyhow, if I were, of course I won't make a flamboyant introduction, if I were to make a flamboyant introduction, what I would have said... <laughs> would have been that, uh, in my view, in view of the people who work in our sort of general field, uh, Peter is just the leading comparative political economist uh, in the world today. He's had, these days, had a huge influence on me. But he, in 1986, he wrote a book called Governing the Economy. It was about the politics of state intervention in Britain and France in the, from, the, from 1945 onwards, which just had a huge impact on the way people did comparative, comparative politics, bringing in political processes into understanding how economic policy is made and catching all this within a framework of historical institutionalism. He's, uh, he's had generations of students whom he's had a whom he's trained and who have gone on to uh, important positions and <clears throat> then we started working together in the in the 1990s on varieties of capitalism and I'm very happy that he's going to talk this evening on a varieties of capitalism analysis of the Eurozone crisis. So, Peter. David, thank you. All right, let, let me see if you can hear me. Can you hear me? Uh, and let me see if I can work this thing. So far, no, but... Well, David, thank you for that non-flamboyant introduction. I hate to see what a flamboyant introduction was like. Uh, 
And I want to thank the Department of Government and especially Stefan Hertog for uh, the invitation to uh, speak today. When Stefan first contacted me, I thought this was going to be a small research seminar in the Department of Government, and uh, uh, I'm glad I nonetheless uh, prepared for it. But I am going to talk about uh, research that, uh, on my part at least, is still ongoing. On some of these issues, I have more questions than I have answers. Uh, But I hope that the way I frame the questions and the kinds of questions I pose uh, will be interesting uh, and thought-provoking and, uh, in some instances, uh, maybe even provoke some research from uh, people here. So uh, discussing the euro crisis at the LSE is a little bit like bringing uh, coals to Newcastle. I don't know if they still mine coal in Newcastle, actually, but uh, with people like Paul de Grau and uh, Walter Chelkla and others uh, producing some of the most interesting work on the euro crisis that uh, I think is being done, and I'm an avid consumer of that. Uh, But I have a distinctive perspective on this crisis that's grounded in Uh, work that I did some years ago, joint work with uh, David Soskis, who introduced me and who's uh, now uh, in the Department of Government at the LSE. Uh, And I'll be very interested in your uh, reactions to it uh, and and in his reactions to it as well. So uh, two overarching questions animate uh, my remarks. Uh, First of all, uh, what can we learn about the euro crisis by thinking about it from a variety of capitalism uh, perspective? And secondly, and uh, maybe more politically, uh, what does this perspective uh, tell us about the European Union when we think about the euro crisis in this way? I'm going to proceed uh, as follows. Uh, First, I'm going to say a few words about what I understand the core of a varieties of capitalism perspective uh, to be. I'm going to do that fairly briefly, and some people here are uh, more than familiar with it, but some of you uh, may not be. Uh, Secondly, I'm going to look at the uh, origins of EMU, again, uh, very briefly, uh, from this perspective. And here the main question is, well, why did the member states sign up to a monetary union that took this particular institutional form? Uh, Third, I'm going to consider the causes of the crisis at a little more length. And here the overarching issue is, uh, where do the roots of the euro crisis lie? And here's where I have an argument that is different than some you may have heard. And finally, I'm going to ask, well, what does this perspective tell us about the response uh, to the euro crisis, both actual and potential? And I think that will then leave us uh, lots of room uh, for discussion. And to keep to uh, 40 to 45 minutes, I'm going to be uh, telegraphic and, I hope, uh, provocative. Uh, So what is this uh, varieties of capitalism perspective in which I see so much uh, promise? And here I'm advertising two books by Bob Honke, who's sitting there, uh, also from the LSE. Uh, The Locus Classicus, at least for me, is a book that uh, David and I edited some years ago, uh, and these two follow-up volumes uh, that Bob uh, has done, as well as a a slew of recent articles, influential articles, that uh, David Soskis and Torben Iverson have been writing. And I'm not going to try to summarize the varieties of capitalism argument here by uh, any means, uh, but for present purposes, I think the most important point about this perspective, the one I want to stress is that in order to understand what firms and what governments can do and what they will do, we need to consider the organization of the political economy. And that is to say every political economy is marked uh, by a specific institutional infrastructure on which uh, firms rely when uh, developing corporate strategies, 
uh, because it conditions the kind of relationships they can form in multiple spheres surrounding the uh, the firm, uh, relationships with uh, suppliers of labor, of capital, technology, uh, and other firms. And uh, from this uh, first book, you can, uh, I'm not going to explicate this, but you can get a sense of uh, this notion that firms are embedded in relationships and indeed the value that firms can create is dependent on the quality of those relationships. So from these relationships, firms secure competitive advantages and countries ultimately secure uh, comparative advantages. However, as uh, Soskis and I have argued, there are at least two broad ways of organizing an economy, along with some important subvariants, uh, two routes to high levels of economic performance, and we think of these as liberal market economies on the one hand and coordinated market economies on the other. Uh, and the liberal market economies uh, conform closely to an Anglo-American a model, the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, Ireland, etc. cetera. Uh, coordinated market economies can be found across Northern Europe and uh, also in parts of Asia. Thirdly, the, the clear implication of this is that even over the medium term, the institutional infrastructure of the political economy conditions the kind of strategies that firms can pursue effectively and the kinds of policies governments are likely to follow. It's a simple point, but it's the core point from which much else follows. So with this uh, prologue, let me turn to uh, European Monetary Union. Uh, And I'm going to start at the beginning, because the beginning is a good place to start, uh, by asking why did EMU take the institutional form it did when it was agreed in the Maastricht Treaty of 1992? Okay. Oh, there's my three implications. Well, this isn't a question of purely antiquarian interest. All commentators now, or at least many commentators, seem to agree that the institutional structure of monetary union is somehow inadequate for coping with the challenges that that union now faces. And indeed, I they put the photo up here because there's a Rashomon-like quality to commentary on the euro, as far as I can see. Uh, Only 10 years ago, uh, not just the European Union, here's their report of 2008, uh, but many commentators were celebrating uh, the success of Monetary Union at its 10th anniversary. Uh, And these same people now describe it as such a disastrous construction that it can seem incomprehensible how EMU was agreed in this form in the first place. So why did the Europeans agree to it? And there's plenty of debate about that. There are some very good books written about it. I'm not going to make a complicated argument. Let me simply assert that I think in large measure EMU was a political construction adopted for political as well as economic reasons. That puts me at some variance with my friend Andy Morovchik and some others, but I think uh, there's good grounds for this. So some federalists, of course, saw uh, monetary union as a step towards fuller integration in Europe. Uh, Others believed it would bind a newly unified Germany more closely to Europe, and I think that was used to sell monetary union in parts of Germany, although it suggests you should be careful what you wish for monetary union. Uh, It didn't simply bind Germany to Europe. It's bound uh, Europe more closely to Germany. Uh, But I think at the heart of the impetus for monetary union, and, and we could debate this, 
was a desire to escape the torturous political negotiations that surrounded the preceding monetary regime, the European monetary system. Uh, so in 1992, uh, Barry Eichengreen put this beautifully when he said, uh, the European monetary system, this system of fixed exchange rates, uh, rates that had to be negotiated, renegotiated periodically among the, among the member states, this system of uh, fixed but managed exchange rates is an economic equilibrium, meaning that it um, works adequately for the efficiency of Europe's economies, but it's not a political equilibrium. And I think uh, that was true, and I'll return to this point. So uh, in some ways, uh, I think in many ways, uh, the member states decided to create a monetary union because they wanted to escape the torturous political negotiations uh, that revaluation inside the European monetary system entailed uh, negotiations that France in particular found galling because in, the, in that context it was the German central bank, the Bundesbank, that always had the upper hand. Uh, now the institutional shape of European monetary union is uh, familiar to, so here's the, I seem not to have put my slides on very well, so here's the construction of European monetary union François Mitterrand, Chancellor Kohl, in some ways the core architects of that. Uh, and the institutional shape of monetary union is, of course, uh, familiar uh, to all of us, but let me just reiterate the core features uh, to be clear about them and to set up what I'm then going to say. So presiding over the union is a European central bank entirely independent of political control, charged only with the task of containing inflation, uh, and forbidden from purchasing the sovereign debt of its members, as I think we all know. And, of course, this marked the high uh, watermark of uh, enthusiasm for central bank independence, independence from the political authorities in general. So that's the kind of central bank uh, Europe was given. Secondly, the union contains no institutional mechanism for coordinating fiscal policy over the medium term aside from, as we all know, a minimalist uh, stability and growth pact that sets uh, limits on deficits at 3% of GDP and limits on government debt at uh, 60% of GDP. So, the th and thirdly, I think, very important to remember if we look back at the debates in the late, 18, late 1980s and early 1990s, that the general premise when EMU was formed was that the need to compete within a single market, which had been created in 1986, under a single currency to be created with the euro, would force institutional convergence on the member states. Essentially, their firms would be forced to compete in a new, more intensively competitive environment. <laughs> Governments would respond by reforming the regulatory environment for the economy in such a way that would bring about a kind of institutional uh, convergence through something like a natural competitive uh, process. Well, why were these institutions adopted? Of course, it's a complex issue. To some extent, the answer is surely interest-based. That is to say, these were the institutions on which the member states could agree in 1990, 1991, 1992. Uh, but prevailing economic doctrines played an important role here, and this is what I want to underline. Recall that the late 1980s and early 1990s were the high-water mark of rational expectations economics, 
and three tenets of rational expectations economics and the monetarist economics associated with them left their mark on European monetary union. So first, uh, by this time, the preceding uh, period could broadly be described as a Keynesian period, a period in which uh, uh, government activism was seen as in some sense legitimate and in some sense effective. The notion was that governments, uh, Keynes' classic notion as as refined by uh, successive decades of policymakers was that uh, governments could secure full employment uh, via macroeconomic management, that is to say by manipulating aggregate demand, operating on the demand side of the economy with uh, shifts, among other things, in uh, the budget balance and to some extent interest rates. But by the 1980s, the Keynesian era was essentially over. And in large measure, mainstream economics had moved away from the Keynesian view that macroeconomic management was crucial for securing employment and growth. The new view, and I think there was a lot of reason in this, this was not a mirage, the new view was that macroeconomic management, demand management was often mistimed, and more to the point, here's the rational expectations side to it, always anticipated. And as a result, it had perverse rather than useful effects on the economy. And therefore, there was no need to give the new union uh, capacities for medium-term fiscal coordination. Uh, Second, uh, similar arguments were made out of the same line of thinking to suggest that monetary policy interest rates. Monetary policy had few effects on the real economy, on real economic activity. Therefore, monetary policy could and should be targeted only on inflation, and it should be broadly rule-based. And again, there's a good rationale for that position, but it's a position which was new in some sense in the 1980s and very strongly believed in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So the clear implication was that monetary policy was likely to be more effective if it was insulated from the political authorities, from political influence. And thirdly, of course, the new doctrine specified that because uh, management of the demand side of the economy was bound to be ineffective, the only way to increase economic growth was via structural reform on the supply side of the economy. And, of course, structural reform is a metaphor for making markets in labor and in capital and in products uh, more competitive, more intensely competitive. So Keynes was right when he said that uh, politicians and madmen are usually distilling the writings of some defunct economist. And that's exactly what the designers of European Monetary Union did. They drew on the best economic wisdom of the period. I wrote a Books, or I edited a book some years ago about the political power of economic ideas. I think this is a classic example of the political power of economic ideas. Those ideas aren't the reason why EMU was adopted. Uh, the re- reasoning for that was eminently political, but I think they leave their mark on the institutional design of the union. And, of course, what I want to draw your attention to, the reason I'm saying this, is that these were economic doctrines that entirely ignored the organization of the political economy, except in the assumption that the one best route to growth was one that demanded approximating, although you could only approximate, perfectly competitive markets. So the notion was that uh, there was one route to growth. 
Uh, that was through making markets more competitive on the supply side of the economy. Uh, and this would work uh, everywhere, provided you could do it. Now, in subsequent years, economic doctrine has moved on, uh, but the sins of the fathers are passed on to the sons, uh, and European Monetary Union has this form. And so this takes me to the second issue that I want to uh, present a particular perspective on. Uh, that is, where do the roots of the euro crisis lie? And the answer most commonly and forcefully given to this question, of course, in Northern Europe at least, is that the roots of the crisis lie in the fiscal fecklessness of the Southern European governments, beginning with the Greeks. Uh, I could have put up a thousand headlines from a build, the largest circulation newspaper outside Japan. And this view dominates the European press. And, of course, it meant also, as everyone here will have noticed, that when the euro crisis hit at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, the problem was framed in highly moralistic terms. And to some extent, it still is framed in those terms. We see echoes of that, for instance, in Chancellor Merkel's uh, statement in uh, March 2011 that member states face many years of work to atone for past sins. And although things have uh, changed a little bit, they haven't changed that much, and that tone, I think, in many ways uh, has set uh, the course for the response, at least in the initial uh, year and a half. Now, note, of course, that uh, the German word for debt, schuld, is also the word for guilt, so these things are... Uh, one could have a linguistic analysis of these things, although it's not just uh, Germans who think that way. Uh, think of uh, the issue of redeeming bonds. Redemption uh, can come in many forms. So, of course, okay, so let me concede something. Of course, mistakes were made, uh, certainly in the level of debt and deficits uh, taken on by the Greek government, uh, certainly with the decision of the Irish government to let its uh, banking sector vastly overextend its lending, and then to rescue those banks under pressure from the EU uh, by guaranteeing the bonds, not just the deposits, but the bonds issued by those banks. And certainly, I think mistakes were made in the failure of the Spanish authorities to countenance an extraordinary construction boom that we're all familiar with. This, uh, Spain built, as everyone says these days, Spain built more houses than Germany, France, and the UK combined in this period. And, of course, Americans would never make the mistake of countenancing an asset boom in the housing markets. But I think the real roots of the crisis lie uh, elsewhere. And uh, as you might imagine, I think they stem in some significant measure from the fact that European Monetary Union joined together several different varieties of capitalism. To make things simple, let's distinguish between the coordinated market economies of Northern Europe, I'm going to stylize this slightly, exemplified by Germany, and what I call the mixed market economies of Southern Europe, uh, exemplified perhaps uh, by Spain, which is in some ways one of the most successful of those economies. And as I'm glossing over for the moment some important differences among these countries. That I'm certainly conscious of them, and we can talk about that. Uh, but I think the core point is worth making even in stylized terms. So Germany is a classic example of uh, one of these coordinated uh, market economies. It has highly organized trade unions and employers associations capable of coordinating wage bargaining that holds down unit labor costs. And the Germans did this in the first decade 
of the 2000s with some real sacrifice. In other words, it doesn't happen automatically, and so the German claim that we sacrificed while others didn't has real bite and uh, real legitimacy. But nonetheless, they had the capability to do that as a result of the institutional organization of their political economy. Uh, Secondly, Germany and many of the other northern European uh, countries have a coordinated system for skill formation that delivers high levels of often industry-specific skills that allow firms to produce high-value-added products in manufacturing to maintain high levels of quality control uh, to compete in many cases on quality as well as price. And its firms are organized as a result of this in ways that promote continuous incremental innovation. Uh, And continuous incremental innovation, again, makes it easier for companies to compete on quality as well as price. Now, I want to take a further step beyond what for some of you will be a familiar uh, formulation here to suggest that I think the institutional features of a political economy turn out to be more or less conducive to particular kinds of growth strategies. I'm using the term growth strategy to refer to the combination of policies by firms and governments, uh, the two agents of adjustment in an economy. So if we think of, uh, in a stylized way of economies facing a series of shocks, uh, they have to adjust. It's really firms and governments uh, that lead that adjustment. And the organization of the northern European political economies was ideally suited to a particular kind of growth strategy, uh, what I would call an export-led growth strategy, marked by a coordinated wage restraint, heavy investments in skill formation, and a macroeconomic stance with a contractionary bias, a contractionary bias to support that wage restraint. By contrast, if we look at the mixed market economies of southern Europe, we see something uh, very different. They're organized very differently. Uh, They have vociferous trade union movements that are largely incapable of coordinating wages, except via occasional social pacts. Uh, They lack the coordinated systems for skill formation that make high-value-added production uh, feasible. And they lack the capacities for incremental innovation that allow firms to compete on quality as well as price. Therefore, these economies cannot really operate export-led growth strategies, at least not with anything like the success of the northern European economies. Instead, they had to develop, and they have developed, alternative growth strategies. Uh, And much like the liberal market economies of the U.S. and U.K., as far as I can see, they've adopted historically a strategy that could be described as a strategy of demand-led growth. So these are strategies in which growth is led Uh, by the expansion of domestic consumption. And that, in turn, is made possible by macroeconomic policies that are, first of all, often expansionary, uh, secondly, typically counter-cyclical, at least in downturns, although there are some exceptions, and thirdly, relatively tolerant of asset booms. And I think if you look at the U.S. and the U.K. economies, you can see something of them in that picture. I think we see something of that picture in the southern European economies from about 1975, when some of them make the transition to democracy, uh, right through uh, to the beginning of European Monetary Union. So to ensure, but uh, where trade unions are relatively strong, but divided and therefore uncoordinated, demand-led growth strategies are typically accompanied by inflation. 
The UK demand-led growth strategy in the 70s was accompanied by inflation. So to ensure their products remain competitive on world markets so as to sustain a reasonable trade balance, these countries often have to resort, and they often did resort, to periodic devaluations of the exchange rate. Right? So demand-led growth, some corresponding inflation, but correction via devaluation, and devaluation, depreciation, helps in this way because it makes imports more expensive, thereby uh, giving an advantage to domestic products, and by making a country's exports cheaper in foreign markets. And so, in some ways, devaluation is a strategy that allows for uh, some depressing, in some ways, unit labor costs. Well, I think you can see exactly where I'm going with this. To blame the euro crisis on the fecklessness of the southern European governments, even though they were to some extent feckless, is to see only the surface of the problem. I think at the heart of the euro crisis is a fundamental institutional asymmetry, an asymmetry between the organization of different kinds of economies built into European monetary union uh, from its inception. And for reasons I just said something about, this point was not well understood when EMU was established. I think it's still not well understood uh, today, which may mean, simply mean that it's not accepted today. Uh, economic analysis at the time uh, EMU was founded was focused on the notion of asymmetric shocks, the question of could countries deal with asymmetric shocks if they were in a monetary union. But the more intractable dilemma was created by asymmetric institutions. So the northern European political economies entered monetary union uh, with an organization ideally suited for the kind of export-led growth strategies that promise success in this kind of union. Uh, and indeed, we can see the success in uh, these figures, at least at the German uh, balance of payments surplus. And, of course, EMU offered them further advantages, as I think most people here will know. Uh, for the northern European economies, it provided guaranteed markets in countries, uh, neighboring countries, which received the uh, majority of the exports from these uh, northern European countries, could no longer devalue against uh, Germany or Austria or uh, Belgium in the north. Uh, and, of course, EMU also turned out to hold down the external value of the exchange rate uh, because it was now a much a broader uh, kind of union, even though it was uh, seen to be anchored by Germany and therefore a strong currency. It rose very quickly, as you may remember, from its uh, inception. But nonetheless, uh, the value of the euro on world markets was undoubtedly lower than the value of the German mark would have been, and that too gave uh, German and other northern European exporters an advantage in emerging markets. So things looked good for northern Europe. But by contrast, monetary union placed the southern European countries uh, in a bind. Entry into the euro, of course, made depreciation, devaluation impossible, and it flooded them with cheap capital, made available uh, by the northern European banks in particular, trying to invest these balance of payments surpluses from the north. So there was a kind of confidence effect, and here we can blame the markets and uh, I guess Mark Blythe is going to come and talk, is it on the 23rd of May? 
here. So he's, he's a much more flamboyant speaker than I am, by the way. You should absolutely come back. and listen. Don't, don't believe him, but come back and listen to him. He's unbelievably entertaining. Oh, this is being on the web, right? Anyway, he's unbelievably entertaining and a, a remarkable scholar. He has something to say, and he'll tell you a lot about what happened when uh, Southern Europe was flooded with uh, cheap capital. Well, so what were the Southern European governments supposed to do in this context? Were they supposed to turn their back on this capital? Were they supposed to give up on demand-led growth? Well, you know, in retrospect, we can imagine that they should have done some things differently. I mean, the Spanish authorities should certainly have found a way to clamp down on that construction boom. But broadly speaking, it was rational to take advantage of this capital for economies that were still in a stage of development uh, seeking to grow. And, of course, uh, they did what was most rational in the circumstances, and they continued uh, demand-led growth. So this uh, slide gives you a measure of um, uh, growth in domestic demand, uh, and you can see the big differences between not just Germany and the South, but uh, the Eurozone as a whole uh, and the South. And until the global recession of 2008, this strategy was uh, relatively uh, successful. So per capita income growth in Southern Europe was good uh, in the first uh, uh, decade or so of the Euro's existence. Now, uh, you may accept some of what I've just said to you, but of course uh, I think anyone here would point out there's a second-order problem that has to be addressed. So given the progressive deterioration in current account balances, which uh, you could see in this previous slide here, Uh, That red line is not good news for uh, the countries of Southern Europe. Given this uh, deterioration in current account balances, uh, the demand-led strategies of the South were essentially unsustainable over the long term, maybe justifiable over the short term, I think, in order to give some impetus uh, to growth in that period. Uh, But... uh, They were justifiable only if these countries were able to use this period and this capital uh, to uh, improve the competitiveness of their political economies, uh, to reform in some sense. So the question, of course, is uh, were uh, reform measures taken in southern Europe in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2009, uh, or as some would claim in the North and as some in the newspaper certainly like to claim, did the Southern Europeans uh, waste this year's, these years? In a sense, living high off the hog, essentially failing to make use of this first decade in the euro to reform their economies. Well, um, I'm not sure of the answer to this. I'm looking into it, uh, and uh, there's a way in which I think the glass is probably half empty as well as half uh, full, Uh, But I think, at a minimum, the glass is half full. That is to say, in macroeconomic terms, uh, yes, the Greek government uh, hid its deficit and uh, overspent uh, wildly. Uh, But the governments of Spain, Portugal, and Italy were generally fiscally prudent. The first countries to break the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact, as we undoubtedly remember, were Germany and France. And if you look at this figure, you can see that overall levels of debt and deficits were not uniformly worse in southern Europe as compared to the north. But I think more important, there's been a good deal of market-oriented reform in southern Europe. This slide reports uh, OECD figures uh, for an index for product market regulation that essentially looks at 
uh, how easy it is to do business, uh, how many barriers there are to competition in particular markets. It's really a remarkable index. I have it, in this case, only from 98 to 2003. And as you move lower on this index, that means that product markets are becoming more competitive. And I think what we see here on this relatively slim measure, at least, is that by and large, uh, in Ireland, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, at least, I don't have this figure for Greece, and I suspect it's not as good for Greece, but for Ireland, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, uh, on the whole, they did make their product markets more competitive at something like the same rate, or in some cases, even higher rates uh, than uh, equivalent countries in Northern Europe. So, although wage inflation increased relative unit costs, uh, there was some reform in the South, and indeed, if we look at productivity figures that uh, separate productivity out from uh, wage costs, we can see that uh, there was indeed considerable uh, increases in labor productivity across the southern European countries in this period, in many cases faster in Portugal, uh, Greece, and Ireland, uh, notably faster increases in uh, labor productivity than we find in Germany. So could more have been done? Yes, uh, especially in countries like Greece. Uh, and in the coming months, I hope to look at this more extensively, develop more figures, reach a somewhat more fine-grained view of this. But at the moment, I think it's premature to conclude, as many do, that the southern European countries uh, failed to make use of their first decade in the euro. I think they did rise in some measure to the reform challenge uh, of the single market. That takes me to the third question I want to ask. Uh, what uh, does an appreciation for varieties of capitalism tell us about the response uh, to the crisis? Uh, and let's begin with the growth strategy of the European Union, uh, to which all the member states uh, more or less uh, completely uh, currently subscribe. And there are two prongs to the growth strategy uh, of Europe at the moment of the European Union. Uh, first, uh, the Union uh, proposes and indeed has initiated a fiscal compact designed to ensure that the member states uh, pursue balanced budgets in the coming years. And they've, for the most part, signed up to that. And then the second prong of that growth strategy is a policy of structural reform, the famous phrase, to make markets more competitive on the supply side of the economy. Well, from virtually any perspective, I think both of those strategies are a mistake. At the present moment, in my view at least, the last thing Europe needs is balanced budgets. I think the recent figures from the IMF on the impact of the fiscal multipliers tell a very sad story. There are more, there's more than one country in which efforts to reduce the budget deficit as a proportion of GDP are reducing GDP faster than the uh, budgetary balance and therefore increasing rather than reducing that figure. In short, I think Europe needs coordinated fiscal expansion in northern and southern Europe. And as for structural reform, to think of structural reform as a growth strategy seems to me to be a mirage. Sure, reforms designed to make labor markets and product markets more competitive will certainly enhance the efficiency of many economies, maybe not all, but many economies over the longer term. But I see no way in which they're going to revive growth in southern Europe in anything like the short to medium term. 
And I think sophisticated European policymakers know this. This is not, you know, rocket science. But they have to have a growth strategy. They can't agree on any other growth strategy. And so they've settled on this particular mirage and claim that it's their growth strategy. Moreover, a varieties of capitalism perspective suggests to me, and maybe I'm too much of a Stakhanovite about this, uh, maybe, that, maybe, maybe I'm too much of a Bolshevik about this, I just think about how to put it, um, but to me a varieties of capitalism perspective uh, suggests that in the medium term as well, this one-size-fits-all approach to what should be done to make each economy more efficient is at some level typically a mistake. So for reasons that Wendy Carlin and David Soskis have explained very well, it makes sense for the coordinated market economies of Northern Europe to adhere to something like relatively balanced budgets. This is the right policy for them. A more expansionary stance threatens to upset the wage coordination that is at the core of their export-led growth strategies and the high savings rates, as David and uh, Wendy have explained, the high savings rates in economies where specific skills are at the core of manufacturing uh, mean that expansionary macro policy is typically not all that effective. So one of the implications of this, uh, unfortunately, uh, and unfortunately for Martin Wolf, who writes about this all the time, one of the implications of this is that it's unreasonable to expect Germany to be the engine that pulls the European Union out of recession. Yes, I think we can expect uh, more expansionary policy from Germany up to a point for some period of time, but ultimately expansionary policy is inimical to the effective functioning of the German variety of capitalism. Okay. And in much the same way, and for reasons that I've alluded to at least, I'm not at all sure that a balanced budget rule makes sense for the political economies of southern Europe, and I would include France in this case in that uh, category. Historically, their growth has depended much more heavily on the expansion of demand, these demand-led growth strategies, and I think at a minimum they need to be able to operate a less restrictive fiscal policy than some might suggest, one that, require, one that offers more leeway than... Uh, uh, than restriction. And, and I actually think there's a little bit of that built into the fiscal compact, so I'm not totally pessimistic about this. Uh, but I think from the perspective of political science, we can see a deeper political problem here. EMU was, if I'm right, in some sense an effort to escape the torturous political negotiations over national budgets and over national advantage that revaluation inside EMS periodically entailed. And at that moment, at this moment in the early 1990s, 1992, there seemed to be an alternative, a kind of technocratic alternative in which economic policy would be based on rules and operated by authorities like the European Central Bank, independent of political control. It would be so much easier. It would be so much more efficient. That's the way to go. But I think it should be obvious by now that that, too, was a mirage of the early 1990s. Uh, to meet the needs of distinctive varieties of capitalism, Europe uh, needs uh, policies that promote a variety of growth models, a more variegated set of economic policies. And to authorize these policies at the European level, where so much of the action is now concentrated, it needs institutions 
with the political capacity to negotiate those kinds of policies. And half a dozen intergovernmental conferences a year is not the way to go that. So at the heart of the economic problem facing Europe is, in my view, a political problem of how to summon up that political capacity, the capacity to negotiate a medium-term fiscal policy with some variation across the member states, uh, and perhaps negotiate a more complex monetary policy as well. And this is not as simple a problem as some may think. Uh, Let me be clear, I'm not simply repeating the mantra that one hears uh, from some economists these days, uh, namely, one cannot operate a monetary union without a federal government. I mean, it's true that a federal government makes it a lot easier to operate a monetary union, but the European Union is not going to get a federal government. Uh, So the issue is, can it get something else that will nonetheless work? And I think As a political scientist, I think it's possible that it may. The European Union has a history of creating novel institutions which manage to work, even though no one quite expected that. And they don't work perfectly, but they work. So can Europe get this? Can Europe get a a political capacity to undertake the negotiations that might support a Europe-wide growth strategy? Uh, Well... Uh, some of the auspices are relatively favorable. I mean, there's now a wide agreement among the member states on the notion that what this crisis calls for is, in this famous phrase, uh, more Europe. So, you know, in 2010 and 2011, the phrase you heard most often was, too little, too late. Uh, But the phrase you hear now is, uh, more Europe. And this is uh, widely echoed across, I looked for speeches I came up with it, only a few of them. All of these people are calling for uh, more Europe. But agreement on the principle of more Europe hides deep disagreement on what more Europe means. And the two key issues are what kind of new institutions are to be created and what should those institutions do. And in the absence of agreement on those points, the call for more Europe is really only a rhetorical smokescreen, as far as I can see. So the big question is, can, and the one I'll end on, is can the European governments reach agreement on these issues? Can they implement what most now describe as the actual solution uh, to the crisis? And unfortunately, there are at least two reasons for skepticism about this. Uh, And the first has something to do with varieties of capitalism. In order to agree on a solution, the member states have to agree on a diagnosis of the problem. And to this outside observer, at least, the national differences that one finds in prevailing diagnoses of the crises are really uh, striking. There are two dimensions uh, to these differences. On the one hand, uh, the differences across countries in the diagnosis of the problem reflect long-standing variations, national variations in economic doctrine of the sort uh, to which Marion Forsaud, who has a lovely book on this, has recently drawn our attention. And on the other hand, these variations in economic doctrine are tied to variations in underlying philosophies of governance, closely associated with national varieties of capitalism. So since time is short, I'm simply going to allude briefly to the German and French cases. 
So there are some exceptions, but in Germany, the doctrines of the Freiburg School of Economics are especially influential. You can hear them every week in the speeches of the president of the German Bundesbank. Uh, On the whole, German economists are skeptical about the value of Keynesian economic management. They're skeptical about the value of fiscal expansion in particular, and they're skeptical because they attach high value to monetary stability and to rule-based economic policies. There, there are exceptions. You can find exceptions, but I think that this is close to a consensus in the mainstream German economic community. And these views are very appropriate for the German variety of capitalism, in which a good deal of the coordination in the economy is uh, produced in the private sector by powerful producer groups operating under a set of framework policies that authorize their actions. So from this perspective, it's logical to believe that the causes of the euro crisis lie in the fact that some countries broke the rules of the game. They violated the Stability and Growth Pact and that the solution to the crisis lies in enforcing those rules. Moreover, these economic doctrines are highly congruent with what I see as a broader post-war German philosophy of governance. I know that I think Waltraud Schelkle has already challenged this when I sent her something that said this, so maybe others of you will want to as well, but I'm willing to defend it. Uh, I think that uh, by and large in Germany we see a powerful philosophy of governance closely linked to the German vision of a social market economy, a vision articulated by Walter Eucken and uh, Ludwig Erhard in the 1950s. And on this view, the role of the government is primarily to be one of steering the economy, Steuerung. Uh, many German political scientists talk about steering the economy. Sam Britton once wrote a book about the British economy with that title, but other than that, I've hardly ever seen anyone talk about steering uh, the British polity or the British economy. And this steering takes place via framework policies, which, just as they sound, set the broad framework of rules within which the details are worked out by these powerful producer groups in a setting in which dynamism, the dynamism of the economy is seen to lie in the private economy. We'll compare these with the economic doctrines that are prominent uh, in France, uh, just across the Rhine. So in France, Keynesian ideas are much more popular. They've been much more popular since the 1940s. They're not often described as Keynesian because Keynes was British, but nonetheless, they're Keynesian ideas. Uh, Fiscal activism, as well as discretionary and interventionist industrial policy, those are generally prized in France. It varies a little bit from regime to regime, but on the whole, I mean, what other country could declare the yogurt industry a strategic pole of industrial investment? (laughs) That reflects something more than the whim of a particular government, right? So from this perspective, from this kind of perspective, and it's not just in France, we can find this is influential more broadly in southern Europe, the causes of the euro crisis are not so simple, and the solution to the euro crisis lies primarily in some kind of coordinated reflation, some uh, mammoth investment program which would take a more interventionist approach to stimulating investment across Europe. And in my view, this is quite in keeping with the French variety of capitalism, uh, where coordination in wage setting and in corporate governance and technology transfer has often been accomplished by the state. And I think anyone who knows anything about France can see the reflection of this 
in these long-standing French doctrines of governance, uh, which go back to the Republican ideal, the Jacobin ideal of the Revolution of 1789. This is a philosophy which sees the state as the guarantor of the public interest, responsible for ensuring the public well-being, and a doctrine which even today is still somewhat suspicious of the actions of producer groups and other groups seen somehow as representative not of the general interest but of partial interests in society. Well, I could go on, but my point is that the problem of deciding what more Europe means stems at least partly from basic differences in perspective about what the problem is in the first place and what the feasible solutions to it might be. And these are linked uh, not just to national varieties of capitalism, uh, but to nationally distinctive economic doctrines and philosophies of governance. You know, D- David and I have often been accused of being uh, overly functionalist, so I hesitate to toss out this ancillary point. Uh, we, we are not. I am not, by the way. I am not. Um, enjoy, and in joint writing, we are not. Uh, he can speak for himself. <clears throat> But having said that, you know, I, I've written about, and uh, I'll, I won't associate him with this, but, you know, I've written about the ways in which the different spheres of the political economy interact with one another, as, as, as has Bob Honke and David and others here, the industrial relations system, the production regime, uh, the policy regime, uh, corporate governance. I think there are deep relationships between each of those spheres of the political economy. <clears throat> And what I wonder about is whether there's a sphere none of us have looked at very closely before, which would be seen as a sphere of political discourse. I wonder if there aren't uh, visions of social justice or nationally distinctive conceptions of what it's legitimate for governments to do that are in some sense, some loose sense, don't jump down my throat, some loose sense complementary to these other institutional complementarities in the political economy. Well, I don't want to go quite that far, but this is where uh, this leads. Now, of course, the second set of factors, uh, the other set of factors that stand in the way of getting agreement on what more Europe means uh, are more fundamental, and these are the conflicts of national interest that any kind of adjustment strategy is bound uh, to evoke. Who's going to get what uh, and who's going to pay? And I could say a lot about this, but since time is short, Um, I will simply say this. I think if we look at the history of the European Union and this integration process as it's moved forward now over five decades, uh, at each point that the European Union has been able to move forward, it has been able to do so because the reforms have been presented as positive-sum reforms. That is to say, reforms that might entail some short-term costs but ultimately are of benefit to everyone. And, of course, the big problem at the moment is that it's very hard to present uh, the adjustment strategy that might deal with this debt crisis as one that has positive sum benefits uh, for everyone. And so the implication is that the only way out of this dilemma uh, is for the politicians of Northern Europe to come to two conclusions. This is where my talk overlaps with presumably what uh, Alec Tsipras um, is saying, uh, the politi- I think the politicians of Northern Europe first have to recognize that preserving EMU will require the transfer of billions of euros to the south, even if that's done largely, in the, as I think it would be, in the form of forgiveness of debt rather than as actual transfers. 
And secondly, they'll have to conclude that failing to preserve monetary union will ultimately be more costly to them uh, than the measures of this sort required to preserve it. And frankly, I think they will come to this conclusion. I think in some measure uh, they already have. Uh, But whether they'll do so in time, of course, is what's unclear. That is to say, while southern European electorates who are currently bearing the full burden of adjustment are still willing to elect governments uh, capable of carrying out their side of the bargain. And uh, on that, uh, more could be said, but we should probably ask uh, Alex Tsipras, who's speaking across the road. So let me simply close by saying that when I think about EMU, I'm sometimes reminded of this old Kurdish saying, which some of you may have heard. The Kurds are, of course, the stateless people uh, in the Middle East who've suffered so much for so many years. And I'm told that the Kurds like to say, uh, our past has been tragic, Uh, our present circumstances are catastrophic. Fortunately, we have no future. (laughs) Well, I hope that doesn't apply to European Monetary Union, notwithstanding what I might have said. If you want to read some more, you can read that. So thank you. So I'm open to um, uh, criticisms, questions, comments, attacks. Uh, all are welcome. If the tax become too vicious, David will read, read out his out. statement yep. uh, again. Uh, I obviously got so excited that my watch has fallen apart. <laughs> yes, uh, sir. Uh, yeah, yeah, you. Sorry? Oh, microphone, right. Um, yeah, you speak about the, the German economy um, and the sort of the... Um, the fact that the trade unions are quite integrated into their economy. Um, what do you think the sort of sort of key sort of policy decisions that the German state made that led to that to that end? What, what do you think the sort of key policy flashpoints in history are? Um, what you know, where did they guide um, economic policy over history? Where do you, where do you think those key flashpoints are, and what what policy decisions do you think that they made in contrast to say the M, uh, the mixed market economies or the liberal market economies? Well, if I understand you right, that's a very, uh, it's a very large question that I, um, let me see what I can say about it in a brief uh, compass. Uh, um, uh, what I should say is that David Soskis and Torben Iverson are writing a book about this, which should be out one of these days, I guess, right? Um, uh, the, and Kathleen Thielen has written a very good book called How Institutions Evolve, which looks at the development of skill formation systems in four countries, including Germany, and I think uh, is one of the, until David and Torben's book appears, maybe the best single thing you can read about how this happens. But I think these things are built up over decades, literally over decades. So the German system for skill formation has its origins in an artisanal system at the turn of the 20th century, the 1880s, 1890s, the very early years of the 20th century. Um, I, I think what's quite striking is that many of these institutions uh, are of that longevity and nonetheless survived amazing turmoil, including two world wars, the experience of fascism and the like. Um, the, I'm not saying that, uh, and I think it's very important to note, that uh, the, the German economy was, like all economies, it wasn't created by design. It was built up 
in a series of layers, in many cases with measures which were not necessarily designed to produce the outcome that I might ascribe to them. So uh, the, the development of works councils, for instance, which would be very central to this system in the 1950s, uh, was a measure uh, taken uh, largely to respond to the demands of labor and to strengthen the hand of labor vis-a-vis -vis capital. But it, held, it ended up strengthening these systems for wage coordination that otherwise uh, might be somewhat weaker. So, so it's a long story, uh, uh, and that in part is my point. These things are long stories, and I worry about uh, prescriptions uh, in the, uh, to deal with the crisis, which assume that some set of reforms we can implement over the next three years or five years or ten years can transform the organization of a political economy. I think they, that, that the changes can only be incremental. That's a, I hope it's a partial question, answer. Uh, yes, we can go up to the far back uh, where I see Richard Bronk. Uh, thank you very much, Peter, for a fascinating talk. And I find your, the mutual complementarity of ideas and institutions a very convincing uh, point, and that divergent ideas are blocking agreement now in, in the Euro crisis. So my question is, what should be the forum or cauldron for debate between these different ideas? Um, it used to be the, 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 the realm of politics to, to mediate this kind of disagreement between ideas. Yeah. Um, that is, a, how would you arrange that in the EU context? And can academia help when acad academic economists too seem to be locked into two different warring camps on precisely these uh, economic ideas? Well, um, well, the LSE can help, you know, and, and it does, I think. I mean, you know, this, these are the forums in which these things are debated, and, uh, and I think that, I think, frankly, I've been very, I don't know what your views are, but I've been very impressed by the level and extent of debate among economists from all countries about the Euro crisis, which you can see on Vox EU and many places on the web. I think there is a very lively transnational debate, which in some ways cuts against my point about national economic doctrines, uh, although I think if you look at those debates carefully, you, you can see in them some of the uh, variations that I'm referring to. I, I, I think that's our best way forward, and, and in my sense is that economists are no worse about agreeing than political scientists are, which may not be much of a compliment to them, but I'm, uh, I'm not trying to blame them. Uh, they, they're entitled to strong views. And I think there is movement. I mean, I think there is movement. I, if, you, if you look at the movement from early 2010, you know, too little, too late, uh, member states had many years to atone for their sins. You know, there's big movement uh, to uh, some broader kinds of consensus in Europe today. But the problem, of course, from a political point of view, is that it's one thing for the views of policymakers and economists to move, it's another thing to move the views of electorates. And I think that in some ways uh, the politicians of Northern Europe in particular have made their long-term task much more difficult uh, by virtue of the character of their initial response to the crisis, which was highly moralistic, focused on fiscal fecklessness, uh, saw the crisis as something that in some ways could be resolved if we just returned to the rules when in fact it really is an existential crisis for the EU. So there's a way in which... Uh, we need not only a movement in uh, diagnoses and doctrines, uh, I think some movement of that sort is taking place, but the question is can European electorates be brought along and uh, 
that's a more complex issue. Yes, Voltraud. Voltraud Shukla. Peter, uh, for me, your explanation with the varieties of capitalism was actually not functionalist enough. I noticed that, in a way, the varieties of capitalism perspective is purely normative. In a way, it cannot explain why we got the institutional form we've got. Yeah. Uh, or explain why we adjust in this wrong way, moralistic way, as you rightly say. And I somehow feel the whole of the political economy of ideas could, uh, the political uh, power of economic ideas could explain much more. And that political power was also an economic power of these ideas because to me, Germany is a Keynesian country. It just is yeah. externally demand-led yeah. uh, growth. Uh, it has, you know, yes, there is depressed domestic demand, but it has always got its demand from, from exports. Yeah. And the, f the plight of the southern Europeans is partly the mirror image of that success. When you see the jobs disappear, no democracy, no welfare state can just let the jobs disappear and therefore the southern Europeans do engage to some extent in behavior that then in a crisis breaks them up. Yeah. For all that, I do not need, um, so to speak, uh, a, a, an institutional theory. I just need a consistent Keynesian account. Okay, so let me, let, me, um, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. I was hoping that we could ignore you, but David obviously pointed <laughs> uh, so, so I get I'm getting two points here, and let me, let, me, let me see if I can reiterate them so that I can think of what to say in response to them. I mean, one which are separate a little bit. One, one is the point, you, you're, you, you contest my characterization of uh, German economic doctrine, even though I'm uh, grosso modo, even though I'm presenting it as a relatively crude characterization. Um, uh, so, oh, let me deal with that first. It, it, I mean, um, so we can debate this. But I, I, you know, I think that the only real Keynesian experiment in post-war Germany was essentially the Grand Coalition and the Brandt uh, government. I think that uh, the lessons drawn from that uh, were, broadly speaking, uh, negative, uh, and that. Uh, I, obviously we should look at this empirically and I haven't looked at it empirically yet that we, we should look to see to what extent German policy is effectively counter-cyclical. I've read a number of articles about that and it depends on how, as usual, on how you measure counter-cyclicality. But I... Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, German, German governments never intervene in the economy. You know, that they obviously do, but I really do think that the notion that uh, when unemployment is high, the way to resolve it is through more expansionary macroeconomic policy is a doctrine that has been largely alien to German governments since the late 1960s, and to some degree until monetary union at least was uh, enforced by uh, the Bundesbank. Which, which disciplined governments if they were tempted to move in an overly what it saw as an overly expansionary direction. But we can debate that. I mean, your point, your point is noted. Uh, you have a certain authority on German economic doctrine that I may lack, and so, um, you know, we can debate that. But the second point is more interesting. What you're saying is that 
this crisis, uh, now, now here I'm not sure I've got it exactly, but you're saying, that you, you disagree. I can see that you're, why don't you give her back the mi- microphone? Well, no, all right, all right, all right. You, she'll just shake her head at me. But the, your second point is, um, your second point is uh, uh, really interesting. You're, uh, you're saying, look at, um, uh, we can explain the variation in, I, I guess what you would be saying, and it would be an elegant way to say it, if I'm getting it correctly, is that, uh, it's not really an asymmetry in institutions, in this asymmetry in the structure of political economy that is at stake here. It's an asymmetry in policies. Isn't that what you're saying? Which may to some extent be driven by ideas or may simply be driven by national advantage. And uh, I, I, you can argue that, um, obviously, uh, and... Uh, as you may know, Wendy Carlin and Andrea Bolfo have uh, argued that in a rather nice uh, essay that one can find on the web. Um, I, I think that uh, I, 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 I think that that's all, I think that that there's only uh, yeah. I think that, okay, so I'll give I'll give you a third. I think that's a third of that is true. That's a third true, and I want to cling to my two thirds of it because. Um, it seems to me that the German economy is organized, to take a northern European example, although Austria certainly fits and a number of other European economies fit, is very well organized for export-led growth. And the southern European economies are not. And that means that when they entered monetary union, they did so with a particular combination of advantages and disadvantages, and that that is central to what happened. Now, I don't know if you would say, but you could, someone could say, and you could well say, um, well, but there were strategies the Southern Europeans could have pursued that would have uh, spared us from this debacle. Uh, and I would grant you that. I, I, will, I will grant you that. I'm not trying to defend all Southern European policymakers. They made a whole bunch of mistakes, although Northern European policymakers have made a few as well. Um, but I think that the... What policymakers do is deeply conditioned by what firms can do, and what firms can do is deeply conditioned by the institutional structures in which they find themselves. So that's uh, I'm tr- I, have to, I have to try and think of a way we could resolve this debate empirically. That would be the way to do it. Um, uh, but but uh, yeah, but for, that would be my 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 short response uh, at the moment. The I think that. I guess I'm driven to this in part uh, by frustration with the contemporary commentary, which in so many quarters uh, suggests, and, 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 and not just from the media, but also from northern policymakers, which suggests that all the southern Europeans had to do is what we did. And that sounds good, but what I'm saying is they couldn't do what you did. They couldn't do it because what the Northern Europeans were able to do depended on the organization of a certain of a political economy within some range of variation, and the Southern Europeans couldn't have done that. And what could then still say in response, well, they should have done something other than what they did, and it's hard to disagree with that. So I'm not claiming that their policies were entirely driven somehow by the character of their political economies, but I do think that they were conditioned at some level by them. I can see that I've completely won you over. Yeah, okay. 
Yes, sorry. Yeah, you choose, and I'll... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you first, then you next. Yeah, uh, I found actually quite interesting uh, that you mentioned the philosophies of governance uh, that reflected themselves on the economic policy. So my first question was, do you think that a convergence of these philosophies is a prerequisite for the stability of the EMU. And the second is, although I agree with you that one-size-fits-all rules are not working in the short term, could they contribute precisely to such a convergence of philosophies? Uh, those are nice points. Um, so... Uh, One of the nice things about ideas is that they're easier to change than the organization of the political economy, So, uh, with at least to some extent. Uh, and so I think that uh, there are certain kinds of convergences possible and, and that we do see that to some extent. And uh, I think that one of the most interesting features of the European Union, if we look at its uh, history in recent decades, is that in some ways it reflects... Uh, an effort on the part of uh, the member states to remake the union in their own image. So that when, uh, in moments of institutional reform, uh, when it's to be decided, well, what, how will a single market be operated? What sort of institutions will we have to do this or to do that? Uh, often you, w one is able to see that um, the French are proposing to have a relative, uh, a union with a considerable discretion and uh, serious interventionist capacities in the, the way that the French state has had, uh, whereas, just to focus on these two countries, whereas the Germans have wanted to see a union that operates more by consensus and that is more rule-based and the like. And I think on the whole, and the reason I'm saying this is, I think on the whole the German view uh, has prevailed, and not because of power, but uh, in part because uh, that makes sense for uh, a European Union, which is, after all, a federal system uh, uh, of sorts in a way that, for instance, uh, France is not. So, so I think that this um, um, a contest between philosophies of governance is not new. It's uh, uh, been around at least as long as the European uh, community, European Union, has been around. And I think that suggests that there are compromises, yes, and they, those compromises are enshrined at various points, almost constitutionally, in the institutions of the EU. So, yes, I, I don't think uh, this uh, conflict uh, among doctrines is uh, uh, devastating uh, by any means. Uh, I think it can be compromised. I think it has been compromised from time to time. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, well, essentially, I have a question on fiscal policy and Southern European mixed market economies. Uh, essentially, it's a question about the time frame. You were mentioning in the short run, right, that uh, it makes sense to have this Keynesian stimulus rather than austerity, as you put it here, uh, because of the IMF multiplicators and that. I agree, to the, I agree with that, but um, like on the long run, this would also require surpluses, right? In the long run, it would, even more so, you, it would require the country to re repay their sovereign debt, right? Which the government is not likely to do mm -hmm. because that is something that uh, makes, makes electoral success less mm -hmm. likely. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the long run, I see two problems. One is uh, growth, mm -hmm. that like there's this like Rainer Dragov piece that says that if uh, GDP, if um, 
debt is higher than 90% of GDP, growth significantly declines. Mm -hmm. And the second point, uh, mm -hmm. sovereign debt will pile up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, up to a certain point when uh, it is so high that the country cannot refinance itself, uh, or it's very hard for the country to refinance itself, look at Italy, look at Greece. Mm -hmm. So um, how can you be sure, to like phrase a question mm -hmm. now, um, that these like, short-term benefits are not mm -hmm. overshadowed by the long-run long uh, problems? Because mm -hmm. like, in, my, in my opinion, the long-run problems, in the end, are, if, depending on the time frame, are much, much, much higher. Are, are, are much more serious, much, much more, more serious, difficult yeah. to tackle. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, uh, let, me, uh, let me speak to uh, the sort of three parts of what you said, because I think they're very good points. Um, it, there are two kinds of balance, at least two kinds of balances we should worry about, right? One, one are the government balances reflected in levels of government deficits and debt. Uh, but the other are the balances reflected in trade balances, the uh, northern European surplus, the southern European deficit, right? So for the debt and deficit, uh, the government debt and deficit, uh, uh, I, I'm relatively optimistic uh, for several reasons. First of all, I think that uh, the northern Europeans are going to forgive a good deal of uh, that debt. It's been socialized over time. A good deal of it has been socialized over time. I mean, the, this, this was three crises in one, right? A crisis in the bond markets, first of all. Secondly, a debt crisis, which was a crisis of the European financial system. And thirdly, a growth crisis, right? And the, um, uh, the, the, the crisis in the bond markets has, for the time being at least, been mitigated by the European Central Bank's uh, policy of uh, outright monetary uh, transactions and a variety of other measures. So the, for the moment, at least, the crisis of confidence is, I wouldn't say under control, but it's uh, uh, not rearing its ugly head. The, de the debt crisis, which is the crisis of uh, the European financial system, was dealt with in the first instance uh, through the bailouts. I mean, let's be clear about this. I have a slide. So when the northern European uh, governments were bailing out the southern European governments, they were in fact bailing out their own banks in order to prevent a crisis in the European financial system. And I think that's now widely accepted. These are simply figures for uh, levels of uh, uh, northern debt in southern countries in 2009. Right? Um, so how, how are they doing on the debt crisis? Well, um, they staved off the collapse of the financial system uh, they've socialized a good deal of that debt because it's moved, it's basically been purchased by the European Central Bank or is being held by uh, 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 the European Stability Mechanism. And that means that uh, if governments are willing to pay, they can forgive that debt. So I'm not so worried about uh, the debt side of it. I'm worried about the trade balance side of it, These, the, that, the, defi the trade deficits, because in the long run, those are uh, probably unsustainable. Now, Florida runs a very large trade deficit with the rest of the U.S., and that's been sustained for a while, but the U.S. has a, um, you know, uh, has a different political system, let's say. And, and it's phenomenally fun politically functional, let me tell you. Uh, anyway, um, sorry, no jokes. Um, about serious matters, I guess. Okay, so, and this is the long-term problem. I don't know how that problem is going to be resolved. I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic about this. Another way to ask your question would be to say, um, okay, so uh, you've pointed to uh, how varieties of capitalism help get us into this crisis. 
you've suggested that we need some kind of variegated policy at the European level to get out of it, beginning with some kind of fiscal reflation. That's what I've suggested. But that might help us, as you just said, over the short term. What about the long term? You know, what's the long-term growth model for Southern Europe? And the answer is, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out, and I may succeed or I may not succeed. I don't know. And the corollary question would be, um, well, would the Southern Europeans be better off inside the euro or better off outside the euro? And the, the logical conclusion of my analysis is they'd be better off outside the euro. But I, but on the other hand, uh, that's nice in theory, but the costs of leaving the euro might be so humongous that I at least hesitate to, to make that the bottom line conclusion of what I'm saying. And this, so this is, this is the big problem, and um, it depends on whether there is a viable Southern European growth model. And since I've been a little bit skeptical about uh, structural reform, which I think is helpful in the long run, but not no miracle, uh, getting from where we are now to sustainable growth in Southern Europe strikes me as an issue that a lot of people should be thinking about. Um, thanks, thanks a lot. Um, one of the things, um, I, I just want to bring it back to sort of a little bit more pessimism. And one of the things that... Um, <laughs> of course, I felt we needed a dose of pessimism. We really did. Uh, we really did. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the problems of political interest. And one of the big ones, it seems to me, is that within countries you have huge distributional conflicts right now and mostly over the welfare state. Yes. We're, we're facing this moment in which European welfare states have to restructure themselves right at the moment of this crisis. And this seems to me to be particularly acute when you're, when you're dealing with, um, as you were saying, this massive, um, massive rebellions mm -hmm. against party mm -hmm. systems mm -hmm. uh, on the part of you know, mm -hmm. Greek uh, mm -hmm. pensioners mm -hmm. and the Spanish unemployed mm -hmm. that can't really wait, while mm -hmm. at the same time Germany mm -hmm. really wants desperately to protect its own mm -hmm. welfare state and mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. the creditor countries mm -hmm. also want to protect their welfare states, mm -hmm. which is the basis of a lot of their own political support. Mm -hmm. So that just seems to me to be sort of a question that needs, needs addressing a little bit uh, in terms of uh, the, the slightly more kind of technocratic solution that we that we're kind of, we were heading to? Well, I didn't mean to be heading to a technocratic solution. I certainly think you're right to remind us that this is a preeminently a political problem. And I think uh, in the end, as I'm sure many people here would agree, uh, in my view, there are economic solutions uh, to the problem, uh, certainly of the crisis of confidence in the bond markets and uh, of the debt crisis. Uh, even though I feel uncertain about the growth crisis, right? But I think the uh, big issue for the survival of the euro is whether southern European electorates are going to wait long enough uh, for uh, these levels of debt and deficits that you were referring to uh, to go down. And, um, you know, for an answer to that, you need to go across the road and listen to Alex Tsipras, uh, right? Um, Tsipras. Um, but what I will say, let, let me... Um, let me speak to the spirit of your point, because I think it's, you get at something that's really uh, useful for political scientists. And when I think about the current dilemmas, I actually think about 
uh, a different economic crisis, the crisis of the 1970s. And that was entirely different. Uh, if any of you have read about it or remember it, uh, that's a crisis of stagflation. So rates of inflation were rising at the same time as rates of unemployment. This is the crisis that ultimately uh, put the nail in the Keynesian coffin, right? And, and there was some great work done on that crisis, and I think that one of the insights that emerged from that work, uh, 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 most obvious in a um, lovely little essay by John Goldthorpe called a sociological uh, inflation, current inflation, a sociological account. Uh, uh, Goldthorpe pointed out that, uh, well, I don't know if he said this, so I'm just going to say it, but I sort of think I learned it from him. Um, the institutions of the political economy uh, and of uh, uh, governance, uh, in particular the institutions for making economic policy, are ultimately institutions for allocating resources in society and for containing what is an inevitable intense conflict over the distribution of resources. Workers want more, employers want more, some workers want more than other employers and the like. And I think in large measure, I mean in some measure at least, it's a complicated issue, uh, the inflation of the 1970s reflected the breakdown of uh, those ins- the capacity of, those, of the prevailing European and American institutions for containing that conflict, that dis- distributional conflict, Right? And it couldn't be contained. The result was inflation at some level. And then somehow putting the genie back in the bottle entailed finding a new set of institutions and policies to suppress that conflict. Well, I think we can think about the current crisis in similar terms because part of the problem to resolve this uh, discrepancy that you see in this diagram uh, is a problem of realigning uh, wages, realigning unit labor costs in the south and the north. So how do you force down unit labor costs? Well, uh, we're watching one process at the moment, right, with the austerity with a capital A. There are t- uh, two other, uh, there's another way to do it, and that is through devaluation, depreciation. That, that you know, that gra- depreciation of the currency gradually lowers the standard of living of a country, uh, uh, lowers wage costs in various ways per- subject to some conditions, and does it in a way that is politically invisible. And that's what the U.K. government is doing at the moment, and that's what the U.S. government is doing at the moment. And it's politically a much less conflictual way to accomplish that kind of end. And we could say the same thing about inflation. Inflation is a remarkable mechanism for doing away with debt. Right? I don't think we've ever seen a debt crisis that was dealt with successfully except to some extent by using inflation. Right? And, of course, it can get out of control and the results can be disastrous. But inflation has the same character. That is to say, it is a way of taking from some and giving to others without making a set of overt political decisions and having an electoral contest over it, but nonetheless letting it happen, right? And now I'm not standing here and advocating, um, you know, devaluation and inflation. I don't. I want to preserve my reputation uh, to some degree. But I think the analysts of politics, it's really important to understand the current political situation as one in which issues that might have been dealt with in ways that were more politically in, invisible, issues about the who gets what, the distribution of resources, are now being dealt with in a highly visible way by national governments, which in some cases are crumbling under the strain, and at the EU level, which never had the political capacity to deal with those kinds of issues. 
but we've got time for three more questions. Three more. I was hoping and I'd talk so long very, that there wouldn't be any. So very short questions and um, you want to very, short, very short answers. All right, all right. Yes. Professor, uh, regarding, the, regarding the debt crisis that Europe is facing currently and uh, its ambitions for more Europe, uh, in July, Croatia is going to be a full member of European Union and there are other countries in southeastern Europe aiming to be part of European yeah. Union. Do you find this ambition of enlargement of EU uh, rational? <laughs> okay, so we're going to collect these questions, right? Yeah. Okay. So, can you, yeah. Um, thank, <clears throat> thanks for your compelling analysis. Um, viewing your doubts over whether um, both sides, <coughs> the North and the South, can actually agree on both diagnosis and uh, prescriptions, would you think that theoretically an ideal solution would be two monetary unions, the North and the South? And if so, I mean, you know, despite whatever real economic yeah. cost there would be. Yeah. And if so, what do you think would that mean for the shape of the political economy of the EU as a whole, if, if you had such opposing big poles? Thanks. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a question regarding your theory on varieties of capitalism in general. Um, where, sorry, where are you? I'm just here, sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, great. I just wanted to be able to... Fix. In case you're overly critical, I want to memorize your face. Okay. <laughs> um, I was wondering what your opinion is on the German evolution of the political economy and um, especially the uh, labor market reforms as well as the uh, increasing reliance on financing from the stock markets, which I think go against the traditional CME model. Uh, and I think uh, this might uh, undermine the varieties of capitalism approach on two, in two ways. On the one hand, because there may be a convergence towards uh, liberal market economies, which would um, end the, the main distinction. And on the other side, because it would mean that because Germany has achieved substantial economic growth, perhaps institutional complementarities aren't as important as uh, predicted by the theory. So I was just wondering what your opinion okay. was on this. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I can answer any of these questions, and I haven't got any time, right? So that makes it uh, easy. Um, uh, uh, let me confess, I don't really... Well, actually, I do know the answer to the last one, but the first two, I don't really know the answer. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to South... Uh, Southeastern Europe and the and the new entrance. I mean, if if we had more time, I'd be interested to hear your views about that. I mean, to to my mind, it is uh, uh, rational, so to speak, for them to want to enter the European Union because the single market is a powerful uh, uh, economic uh, area. Now, you, you can get many of the uh, benefits without actually belonging to it. A, a point that is not lost on David Cameron and some others. Um, but uh, would it be um, uh, would it make sense to join up to the euro itself, the single currency, which, and ultimately uh, new members are supposed to move in that direction? Uh, well, at the moment, it would seem I would want to be hesitating myself um, for the reasons that I've outlined. I mean, I would want to look at the model. Uh, I, I think it depends on the model uh, of one's economy. Uh, a fixed exchange rate regime can be quite useful. If, for instance, you're prone to inflation, um, but somehow... Uh, able to export nonetheless and the like. So, I, so I, I think it depends on the particular country, but I think if the question is entry into the euro and entry into a single currency, but 
entry into the EU, it still makes sense to me. I, don't, I think the EU is going to survive. I've learned from long experience that just when it seems to be facing an extraordinary crisis, time after time the Europeans muddle their way through it. They negotiate something, and the result is often okay at the other end. Uh, the northern and southern euros, yes, I mean, it's a very good question, and, I, and I'm thinking about it, the neuro and the suro, or whatever you want to call them. The, oh, I wouldn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I, again, one of the logical implications of what I've been saying is that that would make sense. Um, I think the pivotal actor is France. Would France want to be in the north or would France want to be in the south? Again, the implication of my analysis is that it should want to be in the south. Um, uh, that seems to me to make some sense. Uh, can they get from here to there? I don't know. I, I have more trouble seeing how they could get from here to there. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the world is an interesting place. <laughs> but, but, but yes, I mean, there, there's some... There's some, it makes some that, that makes some sense for the obvious reasons that I assume you're alluding to. We, uh, 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 so, the, so the German political economy, uh, yes, it's changing. There's no question it's changing. Um, uh, Wolfgang Strake has written a book called Reforming Capitalism, which says it's changed out of all recognition, and Hall and Soskis uh, don't know what they're talking about. I disagree with that. Uh, I think that um, I think that if we look across the European political economies, the differences are still more striking than the similarities. I mean, there's no question that there's been some liberalization in the German political economy, for instance. But I ask you, how many hostile mergers and acquisitions have we seen in Germany in the last 10 years? And uh, the answer is virtually none. Uh, uh, the big change that to my mind is important in the German case is the development of essentially this uh, uh, line of uh, low-paid uh, uh, mini-jobs in the service sector so that an economy that really was concentrated in core manufacturing uh, with women at home is now becoming an economy whose levels of employment by the total employment in Germany, by the way, is now higher than total employment in the United States. So that's a profound transformation. It says something about the problems of the American economy. But a lot of that employment is in these part-time jobs without uh, benefits, and I think that is quite radically changing the German economy and will, I think, require some new thinking about varieties of capitalism from me and, and others. Uh, but at the same time, I think the core of the German export success is built on a model that we could debate about the changes here and there. Uh, still looks uh, very distinctive relative to the UK or even France or uh, even Southern Europe. Well, I want to thank Peter very much indeed for a marvelous and highly entertaining performance. You, you didn't. You got very close to answering the question: Should the UK get out of Europe on varieties of capitalism grounds? But you just said it was an interesting thought for David Cameron to have. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I should say the Mark Blythe talk is going to be on May the 23rd on austerity. So, Peter, thank you very much indeed.